Almighty God, we worship you and we thank you that you speak in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of winter, and the darker days. We pray that you would speak, Lord, loud and clear to each of us, that you would call us into your, your life, into fellowship with your Son. We pray that you'd help us to hear your voice. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. You can be seated. I know that all of you know how our national anthem ends, an anthem that we will hear tonight again at this great American tradition that we call the Super Bowl for the land of the free and the home of the brave. The land of the free. The Declaration of Independence declares the inalienable rights endowed to us by our creator of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Freedom, in this case, means the right for a person to be able to pursue a vision of human flourishing without obstruction from government. We think of New Hampshire's bold and memorable state motto, live free or die. Freedom is one of our great privileges and ideals as a nation. I think it might even be fair to say that it's frequently one of our idols as well. We are truly blessed to live in a land with these ideals, and we are so grateful for all those who have given and sacrificed so much to build this nation and defend it over the years. But I wonder, is freedom, at least in this kind of understanding of it, is it enough? And the answer seems to be a clear no. I'm not suggesting that we would fare any better without this kind of freedom. Certainly the freedom to govern ourselves and to hold our government accountable is a great blessing that affords us many privileges, and yet we still struggle. We cannot seem to secure human flourishing and full life. Consider the amount of, uh, the number of college students in our nation that struggle deeply with anxiety and depression at unprecedented levels, even before the pandemic began. Consider the sense, sense of emptiness and purpose, purposelessness that many feel in their affluence, having so much, having success in their work, and yet still having this gnawing, empty feeling in their stomach. Or consider our sense of self-righteousness as we think about how much better we are than those people who did that awful thing, who are so ignorant, who voted for that candidate, and on and on. How quick we are to point out the speck in the eye of our brother or sister, and we're unable to see the log in our own eye. But the log is there, and we know it's there in our honest moments. So this national freedom is a gift, but it's not, an, it's not a sufficient condition for flourishing. There is a, a deeper need and a deeper sickness. And try as we, as we can to overcome it, we cannot. At the end of John Williams' 1965 novel, Stoner, where the protagonist, William Stoner, a man born into a poor Missouri farming family who grows up, gets an opportunity to go to the University of Missouri, does well, falls in love with the humanities, and becomes a professor in the English department. Toward the end of his life, as he's dying with cancer, he engages in a moment of self-reflection, described in this way. First, he reflects on friendship and showing how it was elusive, and then on marriage and how that didn't seem to meet what he was looking for, and then on his vocation and how perhaps he'd always been an indifferent teacher in one way or another. And then, he, and then 
it says he had dreamed of a kind of integrity, of a kind of purity that was entire. He had found compromise in the assaulting diversion of triviality. He had conceived wisdom, and at the end of the long years, he had found ignorance. And what else, he thought? What else? Despite all our efforts, our freedom cannot deliver. It cannot deliver us from these questions that the honest ask at the end of their lives, from this kind of reflection. But there is one who can. There is one who can deliver, one who offers a, a deeper and a more complete kind of freedom. And as he says in John 8, 36, if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. Really and truly free, not just American free, but free even if you're chained, even if you're overlooked, even if you're unjustly treated, even if things don't work out in your circumstances the way that you would like them to, it is a paradoxical freedom, a freedom that comes to those who surrender their autonomy to another, who believe into him in the words of John's gospel. Instead of live free or die, the motto of this king and this realm is die to live free. This is what he offers. This is what we trumpet and proclaim to our world of William Stoners. A world of free but hurting men and women. It is Jesus and true freedom in him. In our series on the Gospel of John, we're turning today to John chapter 8 verses 12 through 36. And this is falling into two chapters, seven, chapter 7 and chapter 8, in which Jesus is having a struggle with the world. And in that struggle and conflict, he defends and defines his person amidst the conflict. Again, raising that question that, as we saw last week, is at the center of the gospel, as we see throughout the gospel of John, who is Jesus? In fact, in verse 25, his interlocutors ask, who are you? And that's the question that comes before us again today. We'll take this text by looking at three questions. First, who is Jesus? Second, what is at stake? And then third, what does he offer? So first, who is Jesus? We get the second of the I am statements with a predicate object in the Gospel of John. There are seven total. The first was I am the bread of the life in John 6. And now we come to the second one in John 8 verse 12. This is a verse that my family has a tradition of saying every day during the season of Advent when we light the candles on our Advent wreath at home. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We might remember back to the prologue in John's gospel. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I am the light of the world, Jesus says. It's an astonishing and an astounding claim. To follow him is not to walk in darkness, but to have the light of life. What Jesus is saying is if we walk in his light, we will be able to be truly alive. We will not only be transferred from darkness to light, which is true, but we will have in him a special kind of wisdom. An ability to see that enables us to walk into life. Now, the life that Jesus calls us into in his light is not life like the world knows it or champions it. It is a life that is characterized by love, by sacrifice, by generosity, by meekness, by forgiveness, by pouring out our lives as we walk in his footsteps. 
by interdependence, not independence. It is a countercultural kind of life that Jesus invites us into. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And certainly in that psalm, it's meaning that the scriptural word, but we could say the same is true about the living word Jesus. He is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path, enabling us to walk in the way of life even now. Now, why might Jesus make this claim about being the light of the world here? If we turn back to the beginning of this section, in chapter 2 of verse 7, we learn that we're at the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem. There were three obligatory feasts for every Jewish male in the annual cycle. And this is the third. The first was the Feast of, of Passover, which celebrates the Exodus deliverance. The second is the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, which celebrates the giving of the law at Sinai. And the third is the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, at which Israel celebrates God's miraculous provision for them along their wilderness journey. That miraculous provision is characterized by three main things that was, were, were provided for Israel. First, the manna. Second, the water that comes out of the rock in the desert. And third, the gift of light. Remember how Israel was led through the wilderness by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. The light of God guiding them on this path to the promised land. It's actually interesting to note that in John 6, Jesus compares himself to the manna and says he is the true bread from heaven. In John 7, there's a bit where Jesus says that he is the true giver of living water, that out of you would flow springs of water welling up to eternal life. And in John chapter 8, then Jesus says, I am the light of the world. As Dale Bruner points out in his commentary, Jesus is God's great forever and not just 40-year provision for the journey of his people through the wilderness to the promised land in this new exodus. He is the true manna. He is the source of living water. He is the light of the world. In verse 20 of chapter 8, we're told that Jesus is speaking in the treasury of the temple. And during the feast of booze, the treasury of the temple would have been lit up as a great light show with light that was so radiant that it would reflect, reflect off the housetops or the rooftops of the houses below the temple mount. So imagine Jesus standing in that moment, in that time, at this festival, and saying to all Israel, I am the light of the world. It's quite an appropriate time and context for him to make this claim. The language of light throughout the Old Testament is used of God and of salvation and of his messianic work that will come through, through the Messiah, his agent for salvation. And this is clear in the book of Isaiah, especially Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, Isaiah 42, 6, and Isaiah 49, 6. But as we read earlier, even in Isaiah 60, the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light. That passage is fulfilled at the end of Revelation in the new creation where there's no more need for a sun or a moon because God is the light of that new creation city. And Jesus is associating himself with this reality in the biblical witness. He is like the sun that rises in the east and illuminates all the world. He is, as the father of John the Baptist, Zechariah, would say, prophesying in Luke chapter 1, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. 
Jesus is the one who's come into the darkness as the light of the world. Now, this challenging claim is, of course, challenged by the Pharisees. They say, look, this can't really be true. You're, you're witnessing to yourself, and that witness on its own doesn't work. Jesus' response is twofold. One, in verse 18, he says, I am the one who bears witness about myself. So he affirms that. But he says, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And the second response that he gives is, look, I've come, I know where I've come from and where I'm going. That is, he's come down from heaven. And the point here is there's nothing on earth that could authenticate the divine heavenly witness. In writing about this passage, Leslie Newbegin talks about the fact that there's nothing in human reason and logic and thinking that could ever authenticate the witness of God who enters in and breaks into the world from above. The witness of God must be self-authenticating. And Jesus is saying, as I speak, the Father bears witness with my words through the Spirit that what I say is true. Because no one on earth can authenticate his witness. The encouragement of this to us today even is that as Jesus speaks and he continues to speak through his word, the apostolic witness of scripture, which is the word of Jesus. And even now through our, our lives and words as the church, as that speaking takes place, the father through the spirit is authenticating this witness and sealing this witness. That's what Jesus claims in this first section of our text. The second question then is what is at stake? And now we turn to verses 21 through 30 of our text. The implication, of course, is if Jesus is the light of the world, that those who don't follow him continue to walk in darkness. And Jesus gets right to the point in verse 21. He says, you will die in your sin. This is the condition of mankind. Jesus draws a distinction between himself and, and them in verse 23. He says, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, but I am not of this world. And remember last week, the question of Jesus' origin, which permeates the gospel according to John. It's all over, and we find it again here. Jesus saying, I'm from somewhere else. I'm not from Nazareth or Galilee as you think I am. Why this distinction? To be of this world is to be enslaved in sin. As one New Testament scholar writes, there are only two possible centers for life, God and self. If we are not becoming centered on God, we are becoming centered upon self, and self-centeredness is the essence of sin. And this is our condition. Those of us who are from this world, those of us who are from below in the words of Jesus, woefully turned in upon ourselves and enslaved to this kind of self-centeredness. Jesus makes the point about enslavement clear in verse 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We are enslaved, and the end of that enslavement is death. I told you, Jesus says in verse 24, that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That is the natural end of lives from below, to die in our sins. But Jesus speaks of a way out. Verse 24, what is it? He says, unless you believe that I am he. And the word he is not actually there in the original. 
what Jesus really says is, unless you believe that I am. And of course, that phrase, I am, repeats itself throughout the Gospel of John and is an allusion to the divine name revealed to Moses at another moment where there was supernatural light in the burning bush. In some very real way, this man who stands before these people making these claims is making a statement of equality with the great I am of Israel's scripture. This will mysteriously culminate at the end of our chapter in verse 58 when Jesus says, before Abraham was, ego Amy, I am. There is a claim of inclusion in the divine identity. There is identification, but there is also distinction. Remember, though in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, distinction, and the word was God, identification. It is this mysterious relation between the Father and the Son for all eternity that is the heartbeat of the Gospel of John, that is the mystery that's being set forth in this Gospel, and that is the key to life. Jesus is saying that here to them, this is who I am. And if you do not grasp this, you will die in your sins. Of course, their response is predictable. Verse 25, who are you, they say. And Jesus says, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. And we might think back to Jesus saying that I am the bread of life in John 6. Or I am the living water in John 4. Or I am the one like the serpent who's being lifted up that people believe in and have life. He's been saying it from the beginning. That he is the agent. He is the embodiment of Israel's God come to set the people free and to bring about new creation. This is who he is. But he also says something more will help. Will help you to come and see this, he says in verse 28. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am again. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. John uses the verb to lift up. Back in chapter 3, verse 14, about the serpent being lifted up in the wilderness. He's the son of man must also be lifted up. And again in chapter 12, verse 32, about the son of man is to be lifted up. The hour has come for this. It's a double entendre in John's gospel. It means both to be lifted up on the cross and to be lifted up on a throne. A royal coronation, a lifting up. And Jesus is saying, when you see me on the cross... You will come to know that I am. That this is in fact God's unbelievable, supernatural, unthinkable, unimaginable way of bringing about life to the world. By entering into the world in me, he says. And then laying down my life for you on the cross. This is the moment of glory. This is the moment of God's greatest self-revelation. It is at the cross of Calvary where Jesus hangs seemingly helpless, seemingly defeated. And yet in that moment, displaying to all the world the amazing character and love and justice and mercy and forgiveness of the God of heaven and earth. We say, if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. We might sharpen that statement just a bit more and say, if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus hanging on the cross. That's where God is made known to us. That's the claim of the Gospel of John. And Jesus is pointing to that here saying, you need more help. When I get to the cross, when you lift me up, 
That's when you'll know who I am. That's when you'll know who God is. That's when you'll know that what I am doing and who I am is what God is doing and who God is. That we are one. And that through this salvation will come. What is at stake is ultimate. So much is at stake. Will we die in our sins? Or will we come to believe into this one? And believe that he is I am. It is an urgent message. There is urgency in Jesus' voice. In the last several weeks we've talked about the sense of Jesus resting in the sovereignty of the Father as he goes out on his mission. And I believe that is a very true insight from the Gospel of John. But it should always be paired with the reality of urgency. Richard Baxter, the famous Puritan pastor in the 17th century, famously said, I preached as never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying men. Urgency. A lot is at stake in this. And we see that urgency here. We see it producing belief in verse 30 as well. People respond. Thirdly then, what does Jesus offer? And now we turn to verses 31 to 36. And it is no surprise that if we are enslaved to sin, that Jesus offers liberation. But there is a condition, interestingly. It's actually quite interesting to note that in verse 31, Jesus is speaking to those Jews who had believed into him, we're told, in verse 31. We need to remember that. There, there's a gentle warning for us in that as well. But Jesus says to them something about what it means to truly or really be his disciples. And it's in verse 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. That is to say the true and real disciple of Jesus is the one who abides in his word. That word for abide is the same word that's used in John chapter 15 about abiding in the vine. The branches abiding in the vine. We are to abide in Jesus. And it has both a temporal and a spatial dimension to its meaning. Temporally abiding is about perseverance. It's about enduring in the word of Jesus. I like Proverbs 23, 17 that says, let not your heart envy sinners, but, endure, but in, uh, enduring in the fear of the Lord Continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. All the day. Not just at breakfast, not just at lunch. But even by the time you get to evening and darkness sets in. Continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Abide in my word. Not just the day, but the month and the year and the decade and the lifetime. Abide in my word. So there's this temporal dimension to it. But there's also a spatial dimension to this abide. It is to come and make your home in my word. Dwell in my word. Let this be a place of home. Most of us have had the experience of being on a trip and just needing to stay at a hotel very briefly. Getting in late at night, maybe at 11 or 12 or 1 a.m. and then having to get up for an early flight in the morning. And I, I bet most of us in that situation only take our toothbrush out of our suitcase, basically. Just get some sleep and get out. And, that's, and that should be contrasted with if we stay in a place for a week or two weeks, if you've ever gone on a vacation and stayed in a vacation home or an extended stay in a hotel, you, you end up unpacking your bag, maybe rearranging the furniture a little bit, making it more of your home. 
And that's the idea here is to make your home in the word of Jesus. How do we do that? I would suggest to you that we root ourselves in the life of God's people, the church, which is a word created, word sustained, word focused, word preached, word studied, word digested community, where the word of Jesus remains at the center of our life together. We are washed in that word. We, we meditate and chew upon that word together and as individuals. We do this as God's people. The church is to hold tenaciously to the words of Jesus. In them we have life. Last week I mentioned Robert Louis Wilkins' book, The Spirit of Early Christian Thought. And in the introduction to that book, he describes the research that he did in the early centuries of the church to explore the development of the Christian intellectual tradition. And he says the most uh, uh, salient observation of his, the one that just kept coming up again and again, was how much these early Christian thinkers were constantly interacting with the Bible, with Scripture. Everything was flowing in and out. Their thoughts were, were Scripture-saturated. Because that defines the true disciples of Jesus, is they abide in the word of Jesus. They abide in his words. My question to you is, have you made your home in the word of Jesus? And let me say that there is a difference to making our home in his words, to his words being our home, versus just inviting his words into the home that we have made. In the one case, his word defines us and confronts us and challenges us and encourages us. It is the framing and the finishing of the house. It is the structure in which we live that defines the way that we move. And in the other case, we've built the house. We put the frame together. We put the finishing on. And then when we run to the end of our rope, when we can't get through life on our own terms, we invite his word in for a little bit of boost in the house that we've designed. That's a difference. And Jesus is saying, true disciples abide in my word. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that that means that only true disciples are the, the spiritually serious and determined. This is not creating a kind of two-level version of disciples of Jesus. We need to remember and be encouraged by the simple invitation of the gospel of John to simple faith. Believe. But then to remember that what that believing into Jesus and trusting in him means is that we begin to enter into the home of his word. That is where we dwell. And it, it begins to critique us and encourage us and shape us and show us the way that we are to live. And constantly, one sign of this in your life, I think, is as you approach the word of God, do you constantly feel that you're under the spotlight of the God who loves you. Because the word of God will continually expose. Lovingly as a gracious father. The dark and secret places of our lives and our hearts. It will continually draw us to repentance and confession. And to a place of dependence and need. So for those who abide in his word. Jesus says you will know the truth. And this is the offer. And the truth will set you free. The truth. In John's gospel, the truth is Jesus. I am the way and the truth and the life. The truth is about the identity of this one who walks before these people 2,000 years ago and says these things and hangs on the cross and rises three days later. Who is he? 
you will know the truth. And then not only will we know who Jesus is, but we will have all truth. Everything that we think of when we think of truth. We live in a city that is defined by education, by the pursuit of knowledge. And what I would say about that is that every pursuit of knowledge is in the end a pursuit of the one, as Paul says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The study of mathematics and history and science and physics. These studies are studies of the word who created everything. We may not know that, but it's true. We will know the truth. When we know Jesus, all other truth will become ours to know in him. And the truth will set you free. Not an American kind of freedom. Not a freedom just to not be obstructed as you pursue your vision of what human flourishing is. But a freedom from the power of sin that alienates you from God, alienates you from one another, alienates you from yourself, and alienates you from God's creation. And we all feel the aches and the pains of that alienation as we walk through this broken world. The liberation and freedom that Jesus comes to bring is a liberation and freedom from the greatest enslavement and disease of our lives. That we might be restored to God, restored to one another, restored to our own hearts and restored to God's creation. And then begin to live what we were created to be. And this gets to the real biblical understanding of freedom. Freedom is not just the ability to do what we want. That is, from a biblical perspective, just another kind of enslavement to our desires or our lusts or our whims. But freedom, biblically speaking, is a freedom to become what we were designed and created to be. That is to say that we cannot reformat the disk. It's been formatted by our creator. And as hard as we may try in the work of sin to redefine who we are and what the world is. And we try hard and we take pride in our redefinition. It will never liberate us. Because we can never completely reformat who we are. There is a rich prayer that begins almighty God whom to know is eternal life. And to serve is perfect freedom. Biblically, freedom is understood as the the ability now to become what we were created to be as image bearers of our Heavenly Father. You might remember the tsunami in Southeast Asia in 2004 or again in Japan in 2011. And those were awful and tragic events. And I remember in those years shortly after being just probably like many of you enraptured by the video footage of the ocean escaping its bounds and breaking over the beach walls and over the streets along the beaches and then running into the cities and creating this soup of debris and destruction. But when the ocean remains within its bounds, it becomes a place of joy and of life and of recreation and of beauty. And I would submit to you as a picture of the two different understandings of freedom there. The world's understanding of freedom is that picture of the waters breaking over their bounds and creating destruction and debris wherever they go, even if we don't know it. Whereas a biblical understanding of freedom is the ocean within its bounds, creating and promoting life and joy, fun and peace. Here's the tragedy. 
These believers in Jesus, as we're told in verse 31, they didn't actually get it. After Jesus promises this wonderful kind of freedom that we all desperately want, they say, well, look, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. That is to say they were trusting in their pedigree, trusting in their ethnic identity, not able to see the depth of their needs, still holding on to some aspect of this world, the things from below, as that which would be their source of rescue and salvation. They couldn't see it. As long as we trust anything from below, our intellect, our bank account, our pedigree, whatever it might be, we'll never really be able to know Jesus. Because to know him, to see him, and to believe in him is to know deeply our need for him. And they couldn't see it in verse 33. Remember what Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And when the exalted Jesus at the Father's right hand and this beautiful and these amazing letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, do you remember what he says in the last letter to the church in Laodicea? We need to hear this reminder. He says to the church, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. I want you to know your need. Always be reminded, O church, of your need for me, he says. That you would stay in that posture of abiding in my word. Walking with me in faith. And in trust. He tells them their need is real when they deny it. In verses 34 and 35. And we're coming to a close. He says you're enslaved to sin. And then he uses a social reality of the day. That a slave is not a permanent member of the household. But a son is. And he applies that to the spiritual situation. The son is permanent. He says and if the son sets you free. You will be free indeed. He saved a wretch like me. You will remain forever in the house. You will live forever. You will be free. This is our gospel. The light of the world invites us to come out of the darkness into his light, into life. And it's an urgent call because so much is at stake. It's an offer for true, genuine, and lasting freedom. Freedom. The kind of freedom we all need. Freedom from the destruction and redefinition of sin. Freedom to become who who we were made to be. Freedom to become the fullest and best version of ourselves as we're restored to our maker. Have you made his word your home? If you have, do you need to look around the house again and understand the tremendous privileges of knowing the truth and being set free that he has come to give you? I wonder in the end if New Hampshire's state motto is actually quite right and quite true. We will either live free or die. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we praise you as the light of the world. And how we thank you that you didn't keep your light hidden. But you came into the world and made yourself known to us. Revealed the Father to us and gave us a path to genuine, full, and true life, to becoming who we were made to be. Thank you, Jesus, 
we worship you and we praise you. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for sending your Son. Thank you for enabling us to know you. Thank you for the freedom that we enjoy. We pray that we would abide in your word as a church at Park Street Church. We pray for all of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe to deeply abide in your word. And we pray for all of our neighbors that they might come to know the freedom that you bring. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.